Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined first and foremost on today's programme by Simon Jackson. Simon is the head teacher at St Leonard's Church of England Primary School in Streatham, London. Simon, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Hello to you. Hello, Simon. Pleasure having you. Now, um, the purpose of uh, this discussion is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership. So if we begin by taking that word leader aside and considering that in a little bit more detail, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. Well, well, I think there are some well-known phrases in terms of defining who a leader is, uh, probably the most notable being somebody who knows the way, goes the way and shows the way. But within, um, within the school context, I think it's somebody who is trusted with the responsibility of uh, taking a community forward, which not only looks after the next generation of learners and achievers, but is actually developing the skills and the craft of teaching within the teaching profession itself. I suppose we can say with leadership and with management that they are fundamentally different things, aren't they? But there is inevitably some overlap there, particularly in the realm of people management. I think a leader has to be good at working with people. And when it comes to education, that involves not just working with your fellow adults and staff members, but also with pupils as well. So you have to be that little bit more adaptable and a little bit more flexible to make sure that you can work with many other personalities, both older and younger, don't you, in a sense? Yeah, I mean, it's that, that whole community sense um, is really important. And that's actually also the difference, of course, between being a leader and leadership in its broader mm. sense, because you're a community of leaders within a school. And it shouldn't be based on a hierarchical structure. It's often we have conversations about who is the right person to have that conversation, either with the pupil or a parent or indeed um, another member of staff. And then, of course, Considering the difference between leadership and management, there's the famous Peter Drucker quote where, you know, management is doing things right, but leadership is doing the right things. And mm. that's where the skills and experience um, come in. And, and the longer that you're in the profession, um, hopefully, the better you become at it. And the more trust is created in you by the different people whom you serve. I think that's exactly right, uh, Simon. I completely understand where you're coming from there. And I think it's also fair to say that in leadership, you have to be sensitive of the fact that people react to different circumstances differently. And that is especially relevant in the context of the here and now, isn't it, with the emergence of the COVID-19 pandemic and the fact that this generation of leaders in schools, in other institutions, in businesses, in governments have really had to step up to the plate to try and chart a course through this for all of us. Um, For yourselves, Simon, just how difficult has it been trying to navigate your own way through this current pandemic situation? Well, you've used exactly the right word there insofar as you've used the word react. Uh, Ordinarily, with large communities, which is what schools obviously are, you want to get out of that reaction mode into a responding mode, mm. which involves planning and organizing before you're actually then engaging with others and, and delivering to get the results that you need. And that the biggest challenge has actually been that we've been in, you know, four months of reaction mode. 
And that's what's made it really, really difficult. Um, you know, we, we have to empathise with everybody, including governments and those charged with the responsibility of leading the whole country through this pandemic. But the fact that as a profession, we've been hearing things in the briefings at the same time as the wider public have, there's been no time really to process that information before we're being asked questions by our families um, to to react to the news that's being given. So that's actually been the biggest task, I think, being in a permanent state of reaction mode. If you've ever had an eye test, mm. you know what it's like when you see the dots and you have to click the button. Now, that eye test lasts between probably 30 seconds and a minute, but that heightened state of alert is exhausting. And I think that's actually what people are feeling the effects of rather than the actual decisions they've had to make. Exactly. And I think given that, of course, the importance of mental health and well-being has really been at the forefront of uh, the mind, not just because of the stress that it's put on those people that have had to, of course, get certain procedures in place, but also the fact that there is that sort of social isolation side of things that comes into play, particularly with regard to pupils in this instance. So that's also something that has to be considered as well, not just safeguarding the mental health of yourself, that of your colleagues, but also the children as well. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one thing, actually, that has been really heartening. In, in uh, my particular school, um, we were able to bring back years one and six uh, on the 1st of June. We did take a little bit longer to bring back uh, our early years pupils to make sure that the conditions were absolutely right for them. But I'm very pleased to say that once the children were in, um, we did not see any um, signs, adverse signs um, that were in relation to their well-being. And actually being around the children as well, um, it generated a sense of calm and confidence and everyday normality amongst the staff. And although obviously we're practicing the social distancing amongst the staff and we're very aware of what's going on and certain things are slightly different, um, that air of normality um, did increase confidence fairly swiftly um, to the point by, you know, when we when we broke up yesterday, um, we had had, uh, we'd given every child in the school an opportunity to come back for at least three half-day sessions between um, the 1st of June and uh, when we broke up yesterday. So it's, it's, it's important that you have everybody with you. And that's where the relationships which you spoke about at the beginning mm. are really, really important. If you've got everyone with you, it is possible. I think that's um, very right. Uh, the fact that leaders do have to be able to take people with them, have everybody on board. And I suppose at a time like this, it also becomes incredibly obvious that when there is a little bit of a need for reassurance in times of worry and a little bit of direction and inspiration, as it were, it's only natural to sort of look up that hierarchical ladder in your business um, or institution and look to the, your leaders to provide that reassurance. But when you're the person who is at the top of the tree, like yourself, as it were, Simon, and there's nobody really above you to refer to, where is it that you look to for that little bit of inspiration as and when you need it? Um, in terms of advice and, and support with the, with the um, workings of through this pandemic, uh, I'm lucky that our school as part of the uh, Southwark Darston Board of Education's Multi-Academy Trust did have mm. that support available. Um, we had somebody, for example, going through the government uh, government's updates every single day and just giving us the 
salient points of the changes so that we weren't trawling through it like many head teachers had to do. Um, and we had um, our HR person was dealing with all the union side of things. But in terms of the day-to-day support, you know, I'm, I'm blessed with a fantastic team of staff, right from support staff through to my fellow senior leaders. But there are always going to be one or two people who know, know you that much better. And, and, you know, I was blessed to work with them uh, during this pandemic and uh, they, they kept me going. And um, when it comes to the uh, the government sort of guidelines that have been coming out um, constantly throughout this, what is the general feeling about just how sort of clear and concise they've been? Um, do you feel that you've known throughout what's been expected of you and continue to do so to sort of operate safely? Or has it been maybe just a little bit more complicated than that? Well, well, I'll restate my empathy for the, the level of challenge that was, was faced, you know, irrespective of the political colour. It was a new government facing a new situation. Um, so they didn't have, they, they didn't have the time to prepare. However, the key, the key, um, issue in any relationship is trust. And that's where if we're having this leadership chat, you know, I'm reminded of, Stephen Covey's book, 2008, but the speed of trust. And, and he, he talks of two issues relating to that trust. One is character and the other is competence. And with competence comes capability and results. And all right, you can't talk about results when you're facing something for uh, the first time. But we, there was a trust, I think, at the beginning in the capability when they, when they were working with the scientists and they said they were going to be led by the science that there was going to be the skills, knowledge and experience to lead us through it. However, the other side of that is character. Mm. And there, as the time has gone on, I think that is what has been questioned more and more because we didn't feel that the government were being open and transparent as to the reasons behind some of their decision-making. They weren't being transparent as whether they were being led by the science or the economics mm. or by intuition and hope. And that, of course, then leads you to question the honesty of what, what we're being presented with. And uh, I know that there were ministers saying we've consulted with head teachers, we talk to head teachers all the time. Well, I don't know of anybody who was spoken to. Mm. And then, of course, while social media isn't an absolutely fail-safe barometer, I couldn't see anybody on uh, on Twitter from the education sector who was saying they had been involved in these discussions. So it's the character and the and the the integrity and the transparency that was being questioned, and that is something that once this is all over, I think um, government is going to be left to reflect on in spite of the fact that they were facing a significant challenge if they'd just been completely transparent with the sector in the first place as to why they wanted um, schools to open in the way they did, they may have had a better response. Um, And the only other thing that I would say about the decision that they communicated was to nominate specific year groups um, showed a real naivety of the importance of context in schools, mm. because by nominating, for example, you know, uh, early years having to come back, irrespective of the breathtaking naivety that showed about what the earliest curriculum looks like and what's required, and then you're placing all the social distancing measures in there for that. 
But what about those schools who had teachers maybe with medical conditions who couldn't come back? They would have been much better saying, we think it's better for schools to be able to open up to, I don't know, 15%, 20% of their population in the first two weeks and see how it goes and let head teachers decide with their staff which children came back. By dictating year groups, it put lots of schools on the back foot. Mm. That's incredibly interesting, uh, Simon. And I think it has been a period of reflection, this COVID-19 situation. So let us do hope that ministers do sort of sit down and think about those steps that they have taken. Um, Equally, in this week's show, um, we're also trying to find the silver lining to what has been an enormously dark and dense cloud during this pandemic. And it's been a sensitive and a very tragic time for everyone, of course. Um, But are there any positives that you or the school have managed to take away from this last few months, Simon, as you've managed your way through this so far definitely and it be it would be in terms of the important relationships that we have so from from a head teacher's perspective to be able to go into the key worker provision and work with teachers and see teachers that i don't get to see teach day in day out and to see other sides of their personality to have to be able to, you know, to engage in those more social relationships with some of the children, you know, being able to kick a ball around at playtime because you haven't got all those other issues to deal with. Um, in terms of staff relationships, um, we've always had a strong body of staff at, at St. Leonard's, but we're even closer, I think, as, as a result of um, what we've been through. And we have come out of it together. And as I wrote to the parents uh, only yesterday, you know, we, we've, we've come out with our spirit intact. Um, we're not we're not naive to the challenges that we'll be facing in the autumn, but now's the time for reflection and and to we we will learn because I suspect that we'll be facing these issues um, again in the future. Um, but there's lots we can be pleased about, uh, and the other the other more um, wide ranging I think uh, factor to be pleased about is we've we've had a little glimpse into the future about how technology is going to be used mm. in schools. And um, we've always been aware that there's some brilliant um, software and initiatives out there. But I think this is the first time we've seen as a country what happens when the whole country is using it at the same time. And I think we've seen that there's a lot more that still needs to be put in the infrastructure so that the country can cope when situations like this arise. So a little glimpse into the future. The, the average age of uh, my teaching staff is uh, 28. So they were very well capable of, of embracing the technology. So that's, um, that's, that's been another positive. That's certainly encouraging uh, to hear, Simon. And talking about that sort of glimpse into the future, I think it's only right that we discuss what is coming on the horizon just before we do wrap things up on today's programme. Um, considering that some features of this lockdown period could well end up being permanent parts of the way that the education sector does function in this country. What do you think is next over the next sort of 12 to 18 months for you and for St. Leonard's Church of England Primary as we adjust to the challenges of this new normal? Well, um, we're definitely going to be moving to uh, the online platform. Say, for example, we're going to do it through the homework um, amendments first to see how that works so that get families on board with it and using the technology but I do see for example the possibility of much further in the future of when children maybe are off for extended periods due to illness that we can actually have streaming in there in terms of the next year though as, as you asked uh, our vision is to make sure that we have 
um, everybody back on track, the vast majority of pupils achieving their age-related expectations by February next year. Um, we're not narrowing the curriculum down. We have carried out the reviews of English and Maths and what we need to do and how we need to backfill it. Um, and we're confident that although that it's challenging, um, that we will be able to do that uh, at some point uh, next year. So let's certainly hope there's going to be some positive news on the uh, horizon then. And Simon, I think it would actually be fantastic to have you back on the show in future, perhaps in a few months' time, just to see how things are getting on in that respect and how the school is coping with the new normal and indeed sort of look at what state society is in at that point in time as well. Yeah, that would be a pleasure because my biggest fear actually isn't about the education. It is about our families in October and November when Mm. furlough's completely finished and we have families facing job losses and an uncertain future as as then Christmas will be approaching and how we look after our families uh, on that level actually is, is my primary concern for the autumn term. It's going to be an incredibly uncertain time and there's also the variable of whether we will have a second wave, um, of course, and um, we can only really speculate on what may come at the moment. So it's a different thing entirely, I think, speculating on that and then looking back when the time comes and seeing exactly what has happened and assessing where we need to go from there. Simon, I have to say it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the programme today to discuss these issues with us. And until we hopefully do touch base again, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet. No, but it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Scott. I was speaking today to Simon Jackson, head teacher at St. Leonard's Church of England Primary School in Streatham. And for those listeners tuning in, do continue to be sensible and look after yourselves, even with lockdown restrictions lifting, because it really does make a tangible difference in keeping people safe and saving lives. Um, coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, during his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City but most notably he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in a FIFA World Cup final following his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago. I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff and all of that is of course coming up next. We're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool many, many years ago. 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and... um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a, there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, 
whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership, it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and a manager over many, many, many years. He and he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd work with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, mm-hmm. again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier and played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he, how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence. Um, me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to, to be involved in my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Al Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that, but obviously... Uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? 
Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alfred Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who, who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a, a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years, he it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people... And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff and I think that's one thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learnt over a long period of time And is there do you think uh, a, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens but is there a specific moment if you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply Yes I think for, for me certainly um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing... Um, only a few games before I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final and it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team but in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my, my form that I been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. So I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know, in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Well, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. 
Um, not at all. I didn't. You're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really. Looking back, Al, Al. So I never really felt people talk about pressure a lot, and it's there. And people, players talk about, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we had some great players, but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players. Um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week over the next uh, three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And there's, I won't mention both. It's too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course, I jokingly say, "Yes, I was just about to to shoot to score the goal, and I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch.' So that uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke and make a joke about that, and saying, "Yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, but just had a, had a glance round, you know." Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a at a dinner in the you know, Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions, and then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, and that you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then I again, found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did. Uh, um, it did but make then again, if you, 
if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by by quick one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I think probably it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but have to, but I will. No, um, well, it, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. But I do think you, you how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches, people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And, and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader, um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to. Uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team, if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the, 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone how they they are not doing so well he's the best example of management I've seen we've seen we've probably ever seen and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again it's absolutely astonishing astonishing and do you think could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing Teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. 
I think they, uh, Ron Green was, yeah, well, the, the answer is straightforward. The answer is yes. Um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And I'm going back from an earlier earlier question for me that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and- when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. Showed, the word is te- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes, you know, together, everyone achieves more. And that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But if you, I don't think you can switch off. When you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level, you may, you know, have a, have a couple of weeks holiday. But I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organization. And I think that's. You're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, 
and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.